Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Tonight we'll study verse 25, but I should cover a little bit more with children this way. In this portion of the Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he's calling us to wise living, which means that we're going to apply what we know of God's Word to everyday situations, um, to moment-by-moment living. And one of the challenges that he pulls out among all the many challenges where wisdom might be applied, one of the places that he pulls out um, a particular application of wisdom is in our personal interaction with those people that we seem to be closest to. First, our spouses, our families, and then those that we work with. That these areas of intimacy that we have are, uh, that, that oftentimes are the sources of the biggest difficulties that we have in our life. They shouldn't be. They should be a source of incredible blessings, but they sometimes are the source of the biggest difficulties. As Paul goes through this particular section, chapter 5, verse 15, through chapter 6, verse 9, he tells us that the Holy Spirit fills us with the fullness of God so that we might understand what the will of the Lord is and then live wisely. One of the key passages in all the uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is chapter 5, verse 18. It's a key passage theologically. We've studied it a few weeks ago. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. It's a waste of time. But be filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. This, of course, is a, a key theological verse. Any book on pneumatology is going to focus in on this particular verse, pneumatology being the study of the Holy Spirit. And we saw that the, that the Holy Spirit is the agent of the filling. What we're filled up with is all the fullness of God. Now, after this, Paul gives us four representative results. Now, there are many, many more results to the filling of the Holy Spirit or the filling by means of the Holy Spirit, but he gives us four representative results. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, even to the Father, and submitting ourselves to one another or be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. These are four results, representative results. There's so many more, but as Paul often does, he's giving us four representative things that are a result of the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. The, the ministry, the Holy Spirit fills us up with all the fullness of God, and that results in these four things. We've studied these before. I just wanted to review that with you. Now, one of the reason I have arrows going both ways here is that there is a sense there is a sense in which the, the filling of the Holy Spirit results in these four commands that are in the form of five participles, but four commands. And once we are filled up by means of the Holy Spirit and we produce these results, then there is a sense in which this further encourages the ministry of the filling of the Holy Spirit. As we're walking in these, then we are further uh, engaged with the Holy Spirit in his filling ministry. That's why I have this in a, in a circular motion. There are some that hold that it's only the second part, that these, these results, or these aren't results, that these things lead to the filling of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't seem that that's what the passage says. The filling of the Holy Spirit leads to these four things. That's why I call them results. But these four results do, do tend to have an effect on the continuing ministry of the filling of the Holy Spirit. So it's a positive cycle. You're going to see that positive cycle worked out in another way in our teaching about, or, the, or Paul's teaching about marriage. There's a positive cycle that's going to go on there. The wife is going to submit to her husband as unto the Lord. The husband's going to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And you're going to have the same type of positive cycle that'll, um, that'll make life absolutely wonder, wonderful if we're doing it God's way. 
Now, again, we have speaking to one another. This is something that is, is critical. We talk, to, we talk about it a lot on Wednesday night. We actually demonstrated it on a Sunday morning, and I know that there were some that didn't really have any clue as to what, I, <laughs> as what we were doing that day. But what I was trying to do was to demonstrate that, among other things, when we sing, we're actually ministering to each other. That's what a lot of corporate worship is. And that's this first result. It's the first one. The second one is ministering, or or rather worshiping God, singing and making melody with our hearts to God. The third, always giving thanks to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fourth, again, was submitting to one another. Now, it's this fourth one that takes up the rest of this section, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. So what Paul's doing now is he's expanding on the fourth of these results of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And, and as we submit to one another, we're doing that within certain spheres. Now, I, I have to say it a bunch of times because I know there's a lot out there on the Internet. The Internet's a, a wonderful tool to be used for good, but it can also be used to confuse people too. Listen, this is a big secret. Don't tell anybody if they weren't here tonight. But just because it's on the Internet doesn't mean it's true, okay? Especially when it comes to theological things. Look and see who wrote it. Sometimes these people are... <laughs> Or just as they say with some of the bloggers, they're just people in a, in a basement somewhere with a bathrobe that have no theological training at all, and they're pontificating things, and then it gets repeated and cited in papers and all these things. So one of the things that is bad information that's out there on the Internet, and many pastors have picked it up because they're cowards, and I really mean that. I mean that in all with all the love of Christ, of course. They're cowards because they, they're afraid of the 20-somethings in the audience when they do a wedding. And they're scared to death to tell the wife, as part of her vows, that she needs to submit to the leadership of her husband. They, they won't do it. And so as a, as a way out, rather than taking this in the context in which it really is, they'll go back to verse 21 and they say, they'll tell the husband he needs to submit to the wife, and the wife she needs to submit to the husband. In other words, mutual submission. Mutual submission is meaningless. In the military, you don't have a general, that, or you don't have a private that submits to the general, and the general turn around and submitting to the private. It doesn't work that way. In, in a school, you don't have the, the, the student submit to the teacher, and then the teacher submit to the student. If you do that, there's no submission. It's a meaningless thing. What Paul's talking about here when he's talking about submitting to one another, it's within the sphere that we find ourselves at that particular time. Now, right now, you're submitting to my leadership as the one who's teaching the class. If somebody else was up here and I was sitting out there, I'd be submitting to their leadership. It doesn't make me any better than you or you any better than me. That, that's in terms of our essential net worth. In, in terms of our being created in the image of God, it means nothing, has nothing to do with that at all. If a police officer gives me a ticket tonight on the way home, I'm going to submit to his authority. But it doesn't make him fundamentally any better or more important than me, you see? Now, if we're outside, now that same police officer comes in here and, and um, d- decides to, take, to, to be part of our service, then in that setting, he's going to submit to me. That's what it means to, to mutually submit, depending upon the situation that you find yourself in. A few years ago, I was, uh, I had received a, a ticket that, that I didn't feel like was fair. So the only time in my life I got an attorney, I was going to go down and fight it. I took pictures. We were all, everything was all set up. You know, I felt like I had the right to go that particular speed. And that, that it was delayed two years, so we figured the police officer wouldn't even show up. Well, sure enough, he showed up, and I recognized him, sitting up in the boxes. <laughs> and we were, you know, we had all our data ready, and the police officer comes over and starts walking toward me. I thought, well, that's kind of bold. I didn't think you were supposed to talk to the witnesses like this. But he, you know, he, he came and started, and he said, I heard him say your name's Bruce Bumgarner. I said, well, yes, I am. He said, well, I'm the officer on your case. And I said, well, yes, sir, yes, sir, you are. I said, no, no hard feelings about this thing. He said, no, no. He said, listen, are you on KCB? I said, well, I, 
have been. Man, I'll, I'll listen to you when you're on cake TV. That, that is really, really good. <laughs> and then he walked off, went back to the jury box, and I leaned, leaned over to the attorney. I said, just drop this case. You know, just drop it. There's no way that I'm going to that I'm going to interact with him in, in that particular way. It's just not worth it to me. I paid the fine and went on about mine. <laughs> went on about my business. So <laughs> it's kind of one of those war- warped areas of uh, submitting to one another. So I did. I just didn't want to get into both of them at the same <laughs> at the same time. But there are certain areas of submission, and that's what verse 21 is speaking about. So the remainder of this chapter, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, is all going to be an exposition on this, on this fourth uh, command that's in the form of a participle. That's, that's the way Paul has structured this. Now, the areas of submission that he gives here are representative. They're not exhaustive. There's nothing about governmental leaders on here or police officers or, or teachers in a classroom. But we see the submission of wives to husbands the submission of children to parents, and the submission of slaves to masters, or to put it in more modern terminology, or the more modern setting, the submission of employers to employees. In each of these cases, there is instruction for those who submit, and then there's also instruction for those that are being submitted to. That street runs both ways, and we should never forget that. Wives submit and respect, the text will tell us their husbands. Husbands are to love and sacrifice for their wives. You see, the street runs both ways. Children are to obey their, their parents, but parents are to refrain from provoking anger unnecessarily in their children, and also they're to provide instruction to their children. Slaves, or rather employers and employees, employees rather, are to obey their masters, but then employers and employees, or rather employers and masters, are to treat them well knowing that they have a master in heaven who's watching exactly what they're doing. So you see, in all these cases, there's instruction to the one that is doing the submitting, and there's instruction to the one that's being submitted to. Now, before I get there, let me go ahead and tell you this in terms of a general principle. If you're not God, and looking around the room, I don't see any of us that are, all of us have somebody that we submit to in some realm of life. So this principle of submission to legitimately delegated authority covers us all. It doesn't matter who, it doesn't matter if you're the president of the United States, you're supposed to be submitting to some authority. At least that's the way it's set up. Nobody's a, uh, nobody's a dictator. And even if you were a, a world ruler that was a, a king, kings have God to submit to, at least theoretically. Now, in verse 22, we studied this last time, wives be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Uh, you, you'll remember that the word submit to is actually not in the Greek of verse 22. We have to go back to verse 21 to get the verb. The verb is hypotasso. The verse literally says, women to your own men as unto the Lord. Now, wives are commanded to submit not to men in general, but to their own husbands. And this is not a trivial detail. The instruction about submission in this case is firmly within the context of the marriage relationship, not women to men in general. Now, some cultists have picked this up, and they will, they will uh, insist that the women within the cult submit, all the women submit to, say, the leader of the cult or perhaps a group of leaders within the cult, and in the worst of cults, all women have to submit to all the men. And it's, it is, you have women be, bearing children by 
all different kinds of people. We've had this in Texas even recently, and it is a real big mess. It's thoroughly unbiblical, but then most of the things that cultists describe are thoroughly unbiblical. Now, this is something that we didn't stress enough last time. I, I realized it when we finished, so I want you to listen carefully uh, to this sentence. The wife submits to her husband as unto the Lord. Or perhaps we could say, by submitting to her husband, the wife is submitting to the Lord. That's what it means to submit as unto the Lord. Because the Lord tells the wife to do that, by submitting to her husband, she's obeying the Lord. That's the one that she's ultimately submitting to. Does that make sense? That's what this phrase means. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. By submitting to her husband, the, the Christian wife, the Christian wife is submitting to the Lord. And that ought to. Now, I'm not a wife, but there are areas that I have to submit in just like you. But that ought to make it a little more palatable. Because I know full well that short of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no perfect human leader. And there will be times where human leader, leadership, whether it is a police officer or a governmental official, whether it's a husband or a teacher in a school or a parent or an employer, that's going to, to present bad policy. Now, maybe not illegal policy, maybe just stupid policy. But, but all of us, being the independent creatures that we are, are going to want to rebel against that. Now, if short of something that's illegal, or in, in a marriage situation that's just totally immoral, then we have the responsibility, because we love God, to submit to our husbands. We have the responsibility, because we love God, to submit to legitimately delegated governmental authority. And so this is, this is what we're, we find out from verse 22. By submitting to her husband, the wife is submitting to the Lord. Wives can be certain that Christ is never wrong in his command. Husbands, yes, husbands can be wrong. All of us are wrong all the time, more often than we would like to be. But God's never wrong. And God's the one that said for some unfathomable reason that the wife is to submit to the leadership of her husband. Now, that there is one caveat to that. There's one asterisk that has to be put behind that. And that is, it goes in other areas of life as well. If we are a part of a governmental system, and that governmental system passes a law that says that we have to sin in some particular area. Let's say a governmental system passed a law that said if you have four children, the fourth child has to be euthanized. Now some, some places do this, by the way. I'm not, this, certain countries have it. Either euthanize, or if you have the child, then you will... Uh, have to pay a very steep price economically. Well, that is a law that violates God's law. And if you disobey it, God's going to be happy with you, not upset with you. Because the law itself makes you do something that is overtly, unquestionably sinful. That's, that is one time where you have to obey God's laws and not man's laws. We see that with John and Peter and the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin said, you don't speak. God's told me to speak, so I have to do this. Now, just because a government may allow something, now this is the subtle difference, but just because a government may allow something that we see as immoral doesn't mean that we go and nuke the new Planned Parenthood building down here on 45. You, you see the difference. That nobody is making us, nobody is forcing us to go down and 
and have an abortion. It's available. So there, there's a subtle difference. And I know there's a lot of dis discussion in Christian, Christian ethics about this, but we need to be careful because I've, I've seen some, when it's applied into the marriage relationship, I have even counseled with, with some wives that said, well, I'm not going to obey him because I don't like that. I don't like what he says. Well, what he says is not my taste either, but it's not overtly sinful. It's not illegal. You're on, you're on shaky grounds there. So be careful. Obey your husband because you love the Lord. And if you, don't have, if you have a problem with it, take it to the Lord. And believe me, he has a way with husbands as well. He has a way with anybody who abuses authority. The verb hupotasso, H-U-P-O-T-A-S-S-O, -S -S that's the verb for submit. The verb hupotasso means to submit or to subject oneself, oneself to another who has legitimate authority in that particular situation. The reason I keep stressing this is even in our own city, this has been abused from time to time. You know, and people think that they have to submit outside of a particular context. And that is not, that is not the case. Back to my police officer example. Uh, when a police officer is sitting in a classroom, unless it's, a, unless it's an issue that involves public safety, the police officer can't tell the teacher, I think it's time to take a break now. You know, so in the back, that doesn't work that way. Now, the police officer could say, in a broader sense, Okay, I want this building cleared. I think there's a, there's a bad guy in here. We're going to clear this building. And then, then the police officer's authority supersedes because it's a different context. Everybody's seeing that. It depends on the context in which we find ourselves. Now, before we move to verse 25, it would be wise, wise for all of us who are husbands, which is probably half of us in here, to carefully consider the ramifications of, what the, statement, of the statement that's on the board. That phrase, as to the Lord. Because if by submitting to her husband, the wife is submitting to the Lord, what does that tell us as husbands about the gravity of the responsibility that we bear as one who is going to say, this is the way, direction I think we should go, this is not the direction I think we should go. If she's going to submit to you, and in doing so submit to the Lord, you better doggone well be as sure as you can be that what you're doing is not sinful or immoral, and it's the wisest decision you can make. So in other words, the husband of all people in a marriage has a responsibility to be constantly filled up by means of the Holy Spirit and to live wisely so you can lead wisely. Does that make sense? You're, if, if you're going to do that, if we're going to say that the wife is to submit to her husband as unto the Lord, or by submitting to her husband, the wife is submitting to the Lord, and then we're going to tell her what to do, then we better be darn careful. You, you, see, you see? You understand? We better be good leaders. And in the context of this entire section, it means that we need, of all people, husbands to be walking wisely. Because you cannot lead in a godly way unless you're walking wisely. There are far too many husbands, far too many Christian husbands, that have abused the principle of leadership within the marriage. Far too many. And it is a tragedy in Christian marriages that, at least it's close. The, the number bounces up and down, and I don't know how they keep such an accurate number anyway, but the number bounces up and down with regard to percentages of Christian marriages that are in trouble versus non-Christian marriages that are in trouble. And it's because so many Christian husbands don't lead in a Christ-like manner. Because so many Christian husbands are not walking in wisdom. They're not being filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. And because the husband has the leadership role, the buck stops with you, and it stops with me. Now, that doesn't mean, I don't, I don't believe that it means that the husband has 100% responsibility for failure in the marriage, because there are times, and I've seen them, 
where it's, it's not 100% of the host's responsibility. Most of the time, can I give you another secret? Most of the time it's 50-50. A real close. 45, 55, somewhere in that range. Every now and then, you'll run across one that's 90-10. I never run across one that is zero in one marriage. A marriage that was in trouble. We all have to take responsibility for our role within marriage. Now, the, res- the husband has responsibility in marriage. But we need to realize that when we answer to him, the wife answers to the husband in one sense, she answers to the Lord in another sense. We answer to the Lord as husbands. And if we're not doing it, he's the one that's going to come down hard on us. So we need to be very, very, so that should be careful. That should be a sobering moment, a sobering statement for every Christian husband on the planet. This one right here on the board. By submitting to her husband, the wife is submitted to the Lord. God is the one that told her to submit to you. Now, what do you think is going to happen to you, husband, if you lead in a way that God doesn't want you to lead? Whatever it is, it's not going to be good. Now, verse 25, our primary passage for tonight. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The the phrase in the Greek text, at least the first part of it, looks like this. It literally says, Hoi Andres, men or, or husbands, love, that's a, uh, an imperative. Uh, the women are your wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The Greek term for love here, which is in, in red, agapate, uh, is, uh, is the uh, imperative form. It's the command form. That's the familiar agapao that you've probably seen. The noun is agape. You probably see that a lot as well. And um, it, in a very sterile sense, and I emphasize that, I'm not real big on definitions for love, but in a very sterile sense, it means to will the very best for someone else. That's what this term agapao means, especially in the imperative form. All definitions, really, for me, when it comes to love, seem a little bit less than fulfilling. And I think, I thought about this a lot, I think it's because each of us has an innate idea or an inborn idea of what love is. Now, some of our ideas of love get get perverted or warped, even as young children, sometimes people can be abused and that idea becomes warped. But we may not be able to define it, but most people know it when they see it. And they know it when they're in it. So the idea of defining love is a challenging thing. It's kind of like defining happiness. We can define happiness by saying it's the absence of something. We can, happiness is a lack of anxiety. It's a lack of angst. Or we can use synonyms for happiness, like it, it's joy, it's contentment. But it's really difficult to define words like that. But we know it when we're in it, don't we? We know when we're happy, and we can kind of spot it in someone else as well. But agapao, it's when we search out the context that this word is used in, it refers to love irrespective of merit. And this is loving someone, husbands, when they don't deserve it. Sometimes people call this unconditional love. Now this is a present imperative, which indicates that this idea of loving one's wife, of willing the very best for her, or to love her unconditionally, 
in, in spite of herself, whether at any given moment she's lovable. Now, ladies, I hate to break it to you, but there are, there are nanoseconds. That's just a fraction of a second when sometimes y'all aren't as lovable as you should be. There are times when y'all little darlings, my wife's not here, but when y'all little darlings are not as darling as you are in the next moment. But that gives no, a husband no excuse to get out of there. And again, in my experience in the counseling realm, husbands would love to get out of loving their wives because she does this. If you knew how she treated me, you wouldn't be telling me to do that. And I said, I'm not the one telling you to do it. Christ is telling you to do it. Now, that's between you and him. But don't give me this nonsense of she's treating you this way, so therefore you're not going to love her. I heard the same things with wives. If you knew, if you knew you know, how, what a louse he was, especially when the church first started, those first five years, I heard that so many times. It was a real problem in our church. And then they would sit me, sit me down and tell me what their husbands had done. And I'd say, yeah, he is the church. I agree with you, but still need to submit to his leadership. Then I would talk to the husband. I said, well, you know, wife's asked me to sit down and talk with you, and you know, I hope it's okay. Would you like, yeah, let's, let's chat. Well, this is kind of what's going on. What say you? Well, if you knew what a so-and-so she was, you'd know why I do that. I said, can we both see what the problem is here? Neither one of you is following the biblical mandate. Both of you have left and are trying something else and then expecting God to bless that marriage. So what we have to do when, these, when marriages go off the track is one party or the other has got to start somewhere, and I would propose it needs to be the man. You're the leader in the marriage. But somebody has got to get back to the biblical model, has got to commit themselves to obeying the biblical model, whether or not the other party fulfills their role. So husbands, as hard as it is, as counterintuitive as it is, and I agree, it's counterintuitive. I'm a realist. And I have a, I'm going to say, I, I joke a lot, I have a great marriage. I, I do, but I'm a realist as well. Because I know nobody's perfect. Me included, my wife included, you or your wife. None of us are perfect, and there are going to be times when we get off the track. You want to fix it? Get back on the track. If she doesn't, I'm speaking to man now, if she doesn't want to get back on the track, that's her problem. If the marriage ends up in divorce and you got back on the track, then that's her problem. You can't fix anybody but yourself. You can only, you can only obey for yourself. Men, you can't make your wives submit to you. Matter of fact, the harder you try to do that, the worse it's going to be. And you can't wait for her to start submitting before you're going to start loving her. That's got to come first. Wives, you can't make him be a better leader. You can pray for him. That's what Peter tells the Christian wives to do, specifically in the context of non-Christian husbands. Win him over by your chaste behavior. I know this is not easy. And I know there are a lot of Christian marriages that are, are, are tough out there. I know there are Christian marriages that, for all intents and purposes, are not fixable. Because they, these things have gone too far off the track. But if it hadn't gone too far off the track, and you want to fix it, even if it's only been off the track for 30 minutes, you know what I mean, don't you? It's been off the track for a little while. Then you return 
to your role. And then let the proverbial chips fall where they may. And God will honor that. The wife's submission to her husband is not contingent on the merit of her husband. And the husband's submission, or sorry, the husband's love of his wife is not contingent on the wife's lovability, if I could use that strange word. It's not contingent upon the wife's lovability at any particular moment. You, you know what I find a lot, guys, with us wives, is that we like the leadership part. We don't like the responsibility part. You know? We have the responsibility. <laughs> God put us there. We don't have the, also, we don't have the option to say, well, I don't want to be the leader. You be the leader. I don't want it. That makes for failed marriages sometimes. It just it just does not work. Now, granted, there are particular times in a marriage where it may have to be that way because of health issues or injuries or, or things such as that nature. But that's not that we're talking about the norm here, not something that's not the norm. So agapao refers to love irrespective of merit. It's loving someone when that person doesn't necessarily deserve it at that particular moment, and we call that unconditional love. It's a present imperative, meaning that it's not something you decide to do once and you can look the other way and never worry about it again. We have, when, when we wake up every morning in marriage, it's a new day. Sometimes when we come home from lunch, it's a new day. You know, sometimes you get home from dinner, it's a new day. Depends upon what happened. And we need to renew that responsibility, renew that vow to love constantly in light of the renewed circumstances in, in which we find ourselves. I am not saying it's easy. And I'm not saying you can automatically flip the switch. I know it's a challenge, and I know it's difficult to love your wife in spite of any lovability on her part at that moment. Now, you did love her in the beginning, right? <laughs> I mean, you said you did when, when you said, I do. So we're not asking, the, the Lord is not asking you to do something that is totally outside the realm of human uh, possibility. But he is asking you, he is insisting rather, that you do that. This means that love, while it is an emotion, and I, I reject any definition of love that, that makes it sans emotion or without emotion, because love by definition is an emotion, but it's also an act of the will. This is not to say that it's an act of the will entirely devoid of emotion, but it is an act of the will along with the or with emotion. To assist husbands in what might be a very perplexing thing as to how this is really supposed to work out, Paul does it again. He pull, pulls out the apostolic ace trump. The apostolic ace trump is, of course, Christ on the cross. And so he brings up our Lord. How are we to love them unconditionally, even, if, even at times when wives aren't uh, lovable? And by the way, husbands can have that uh, as well. Also, let me just insert this quickly. Someone le leading church one time or several years back said, I've never been told to love my husband. I don't have to love my husband. Well, that's stupid. Yeah, I mean, you've been told to love your neighbor. Your husband's one of your neighbors. Yeah, you, you do. <laughs> he comes under that category. But we're talking about this specific responsibility within marriage. So don't don't think that um, that you wives don't need to, to love their husbands. That that should be so counterintuitive that you should reject that. I, I would hope you would have rejected that. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself 
for her. Jesus Christ is the standard. Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life for the church. That's you and me. Remember, the church is the big C church, everyone who has trusted Christ in this dispensation. He laid down his life for all of us. So you want to see the standard, the model for what a husband's love should look like? That's it. And if the things that we said before didn't humble you, this one really ought to. Because in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says that we were sinners. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, this is before we came to Christ, we're, we're called enemies of Christ. You, you get it? You see, he loved us unconditionally before we were lovable. With this kind of sacrificial love, as the model to follow, the husband's leadership should and hopefully will be marked by self-sacrifice, humbly leading the home as a servant, never as a despot, and never as a tyrant, if this is the sacrificial model that we use. Now, in the lessons to come, this one statement will be unpacked a bit. There'll be some theological material that's unpacked. But for now, because we'll, we'll actually have two weeks before we return to this subject, I want to leave you with this. This is, the, this is God's solution to a marriage that honors him. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives in like manner as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. If we can accomplish this by means of the Spirit. Remember, the, this whole thing comes under the category of results of being filled up by means of the Spirit. Both the husband's and the wife's responsibility. Then our marriages are going to be much more God-honoring than perhaps they are even now. Even the best marriage can improve. Thank you, Father, for this uh, instruction. Instruction is sometimes, uh, certainly today, it goes against the grain of today's culture. But it's the truth. And that's what we seek. We don't, we don't want to fool ourselves with anything but that. So we thank you for this instruction. And for those who are married, I, I just pray that all of us would heed this instruction and that we might glorify you through our marriage. We'll ask it in Christ's name.